All right. Uh, one of the, the words you hear a lot this time of year, especially in our Christmas songs, uh, is the word Emmanuel. And most of you probably know about that word and what it means. Uh, a few weeks ago, you heard Christy Stauffer play O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on her violin. Uh, some of the other songs, that's, that word features heavily. O Little Town of Bethlehem ends with the words, O Come to Us, Abide with Us, Our Lord Emmanuel. And you may know that Emmanuel is a Hebrew word. That means God with us, and it's one of the names that the Bible gives to Jesus. Matthew, in the beginning of his gospel, actually quotes an Old Testament passage, and Matthew says this, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, that's a, that's a very happy thought, isn't it? God with us. We, we love to hear that. It's, it's, it's cheerful, it's happy, it's positive. Uh, and so Emmanuel has, has kind of gone the same direction as that expression we heard that was, that was sung to the shepherds, that peace on earth, goodwill to men. It kind of goes along with all that happy Christmas stuff, that everything is good, everything's all right. You know, the idea is this, because of Emmanuel, because we know that God is with us, because we know that God cares about us and thought so much of us that he actually came down to earth to become one of us and to be with us, that means that the world is going to be a happy place that everything is always going to turn out okay in the end, and, and, and 2020 will eventually come to an end, and, and, and life is not going to be as bad as we sometimes fear that it will be. So cheer up. Everything's cool. Everything's great. God is with us. That's how sometimes we understand it, and there's a little bit to that, but, but let me say this. Emmanuel, God with us, Emmanuel is more than just a happy word. It's more than just a sentiment. In fact, it's more than just a promise or a prophecy, even though it is those things. I want to suggest to you this morning that Emmanuel is actually an invitation. It's an invitation and it's a challenge. It's an invitation to respond. And today what I want to do is I want to issue that challenge to you this morning. And I want to do that not by preaching from the New Testament story of Jesus so much, but by taking you to the Old Testament and I want to tell you the story of the first Emmanuel, the first Emmanuel, the actual Old Testament passage that Matthew was quoting when he said a virgin will conceive and bear a son. So let's turn there together. You will find this story in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and it's in chapter 7 of Isaiah. So if you're not used to turning around in the Old Testament prophets, you go to Psalms, and then a few, a few books later is the next really big book. It's got 66 chapters, and it's Isaiah. And I want you to find chapter 7. And a lot of this is going to be me just kind of telling you the story and doing a little bit of paraphrasing, but um, we're going to read some of it directly as well. We're going to start by doing that with verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 7. And then after I read those two verses, I'll give you a little bit of the historical context of what's happening and, and where we're at. It says this, Isaiah 7, starting in verse 1, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So here's what's happening story takes place in the 700s B.C., so about 700 years before Jesus is born. During this time, Israel, the nation of Israel, 
God's Old Testament people, they are divided into two different nations. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom we usually know as Judah. The northern kingdom is often just called Israel. Sometimes it's called Ephraim like it is here. Sometimes it's referred to as Samaria because Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom just like Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. So you'll hear all those words, but there are two different kingdoms. And Ahaz, our our main character here, is the king of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So all this takes place in Judah. And, and during this time, we haven't met them yet, we will in a few verses, but there is a, a brutal empire that is on the rise and threatening to take over most of the Middle East, and they eventually will. And this empire is called the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire. You may have heard of it. Uh, its capital was a place called Nineveh. Uh, Jonah, the prophet Jonah, once spent some quality time there, and he actually had a very surprisingly effective preaching tour when he was in Nineveh. But in general, in general, the Assyrians are pretty nasty characters. The Assyrians show no mercy to the lands that they conquer or to the people who rebel against them. In fact, most historians believe that the Assyrians are the ones who actually invented crucifixion as a form of execution for those who would stand up against them and rebel. And there were two nations... If you look at, the, at, at what I have here for you on the slide, the, the geography of the situation is there are two nations that are kind of a buffer between the nation of Judah and the kingdom of Assyria. And those nations are the northern kingdom of Israel and the nation of Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. Syria, you'll sometimes hear it referred to in the Bible as Damascus. That was the capital. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Aram or Aram, but that's Syria. So those are the two nations between Judah and Assyria. And these two nations... Uh, They were closer to the action, and they were trying to sort of consolidate their power to try to fight off the oncoming Assyrian invasion, and so they had formed an alliance. And what they could have done, I suppose, is gone down to Judah and invited Judah to join their alliance too, but they didn't do that, probably because Judah was kind of an unpredictable place. Judah didn't usually do alliances, and you never knew when the king of Judah was going to do something crazy, like actually try to obey God, which they did from time to time, not as much as they probably should have. But this made Judah a wild card, something that the nations of Syria and Israel couldn't really afford to deal with. And so they figured the best way to get rid of the uncertainty was just to take over Judah and depose the king, depose Ahaz, and then install a puppet king over Judah so that that he would agree with them and be part of their alliance. And that's what they planned to do. And as a result, the people of Judah found this out, and it says that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people of the nation, they were shaking like trees shake, the branches of the trees shake in a stiff wind. So the time of Emmanuel, we haven't met him yet, but we will. The time of Emmanuel is a time of great fear. It's a time of of storm clouds gathering, a time of great threat. There are horrible things potentially looming in the very near future for the nation of Judah. So this is like way worse than 2020. Okay, it's a bad scene for God's people. Let me ask you something. What are the things in your life, whether it's something that's already happened to you or something that is happening or maybe something that you fear will happen, what are the things in your life that when you think about them, when you think about these fears or these possibilities, they make your heart shake like leaves on a tree? When you think about these things happening, it just takes your breath away. It sends chills down your spine and not in a good way when you think about them? What are those things that scare you that much? Is it maybe a bad report from your pathologist or your cancer doctor? 
Is it the notice that job cuts are coming at your place of employment and you might be in line for one of them? Is, is it uh, the fear of failure because there's something you've got to do and get done at school or at work or whatever and you know that if you mess it up, the stakes are just too high and bad things will happen? Is it a fear that, that, that the romantic relationship that you're in with a boyfriend or girlfriend might end and if it does, then you'll never ever find a life partner? Is it the fear that something will happen to one of your kids? That one of your children will be in an accident or, or, that, or that one of them will, will run away from the Lord or that one day one of your children will come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I've never told you this before, but I've been thinking a lot about myself and, and I don't want you to be mad, but I found out that I'm fill in the blank. Is it a fear that, that if the economy shuts down again, your business is going to fail completely and then how are you and your family going to make ends meet? That's obviously not even close to a comprehensive list. That's some of the things. But there are a lot of other things that can give us these nightmares and send chills down our spines and make our hearts shake, right? And I'm not trying to stir these things up for you. I'm just kind of telling you the truth. We all have these things. And the times that all of these threats and fears go away at the same time are few and far between, right? I mean, think about it. If ever. I mean, most of us have a fantasy, And I'm going to tell you about this fantasy because I have it and I think you have it too. For most of us, there's a fantasy that at some point, our lives and the lives of our families will reach a place where we no longer have to worry about anything because everything's taken care of and everything is stable and at equilibrium, right? Now, maybe little things will happen, like little, you know, dent in the fender kind of things. We don't have to worry about, but, but all the big things will be all settled and will be fine because everybody that we know and love will be healthy. Everybody will be nearby. Everybody will be married off and living in uninterrupted wedded bliss. Everybody will be gainfully employed, financially secure. They won't struggle anymore in their faith. They'll all be leading small groups at their churches. And, and our family will enter into a time of wonderful emotional and spiritual and financial shalom. Do you have that fantasy? That's okay. But do you at least know what it is, that it's a fantasy? It is. Because on this side of glory, that doesn't happen. I'm sorry. The minute you start to approach that peaceful equilibrium in your life when all those things are almost, everything's almost right, you know what happens? You've got all of your little, everything stacked on your plates in just the right place and all the neat little piles and all of a sudden what's going to happen is is something's going to fall off one side of the plate and you're going to tip and the whole thing falls over and you need to start building it up again to have that hope of, of, of wonderfulness again. And if you live long enough, you'll figure that out. This isn't just worldly cynicism or being negative. This is Bible truth. God's plan, listen, God's plan is not for Christians to live in this present age in a trouble-free, secure state of worldly blessedness. In this world, you will have trouble, someone once said in red letters. Even in the most peaceful time, there's always going to be a potential invasion lurking over the northern boundaries of your life, to use the Isaiah 7 language, I suppose. Just a fallen world that we live in. And God has called us to stay here and occupy until he is done using us in this place and he can bring us to his side in glory. So the question is not, will scary things happen? 
The question is, when these things happen, or when they threaten to happen, how will we respond? And that's the question, of course, that Ahaz had to answer as well. Let's get back to the story. Because the prophet Isaiah comes into the room. So now enter Isaiah. He's the prophet of this time. And he has a message from God to Ahaz the king. And here's his message. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to just kind of paraphrase and tell it in my own words. But he says this, Ahaz, I know about the plans. I know about these kings. I know that they want to invade your country and to depose you and to put a puppet king in your place. In fact, I know even more than you do. And there's a verse in there where God kind of gives the details of the plot. And then God says, you know what, Ahaz? It's not that big a deal. These two kings are totally lame. This is a paraphrase. It doesn't say that exactly. These are two weak rulers who are panicking and they're just sort of, they're, they're, they're doing stupid things and they're doomed to failure. It's not going to work. The invasion that you fear is not going to happen. In fact, these kings, these two kings you're afraid of, aren't even going to be around very much longer. Now Ahaz, I know that your faith in me is pretty weak, and, and it was. So Ahaz, I'm willing to give you a sign. In fact, I'm willing to let you ask for the sign. You tell me what you want the sign to be, and I'll give it to you. I'll give you any sign. And God says, as high as the heavens above or as low as the depth below, I will give you any sign you want. If you want a hippopotamus to ride a unicycle down Main Street in Jerusalem singing Feliz Navidad, I will make it happen. That would be horrible. But this is an incredible offer when you think about it, right? God is offering to give Ahaz something that Jesus actually rebuked people for asking for in the Gospels, a miraculous sign. Why is God offering this? Because he's giving Ahaz, who, and I will tell you the truth, who from the start was a faithless, idolatrous scoundrel of a king. But God is giving him every possible opportunity to repent and to trust in him. You see, God knows what's going on in Ahaz's mind, and Ahaz's plan all along that he's been developing, his plan has been to reach out to the Assyrians, to the big, nasty bully up north, and to offer them some concessions to get them to wipe out Syria and northern Israel for him. That was his scheme, which maybe makes sense in the short term or in the very you know, worldly strategic sense, but it wasn't God's way. And I think somehow Ahaz knew that it wasn't God's way. And so to save face with Isaiah, Ahaz answers in verse 12 by doing what we sometimes do. We do this too. Ahaz gave a very spiritual sounding answer to justify his disobedience. He says, no, I don't need a sign. I don't need a sign. I don't want to test the Lord. That would be unspiritual. Well, Ahaz, maybe under some circumstances, yes, but God has just told you to ask him for a sign. You ever do that to God? I do that sometimes. You know, you you have a decision to make. You have a direction. You have to decide what you're going to do. And you could go to God and ask him for guidance really open-mindedly. You know, or you could go to God and at least ask him to intervene if you're going in the wrong direction and invite him to speak into the situation. But instead, you're already so invested in your own set of plans that what you do, and what I do sometimes, you just make the decision yourself right? And then you say, I'm trusting God with the outcome. Or you say, God's will be done. No, what you mean is, my will be done. And and I hope that God makes it all okay and fixes it if I mess it up too bad, because after all, God's in charge of my life. No, I don't think he is. God sees right through this. In fact, he sees right through Ahaz here too. 
And so God says, Ahaz, you want to be all spiritual and say you don't want a sign? Fine. Here's what's going to happen. You don't ask for a sign. I'm going to give you my own sign. I'm going to pick the sign, and here's what it is. Verse 14 of Isaiah 7. Let's read 14 through 17. In fact, let's read 13 to see how angry God is. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, there's a lot here. But let's start by saying this. In order for this to truly be a sign to King Ahaz, there has to be an actual child born in his time here. That is, there was evidently a woman who was known to both Ahaz and to Isaiah. And this woman uh, was probably not yet married. She may have been engaged. But she was a virgin at the time this, this, uh, this was, was prophesied. And the woman, when she married, would soon become pregnant in the regular way. And she would give birth to a son. And she would give that son a very particular name, Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. But then Isaiah goes on and says, Ahaz, because of your refusal to seek God's direction, because of your determination to do things your own way and to make this deal with Assyria, this sign is not just going to be a happy thing for you that God is with you. This is going to be a standing rebuke to you. This is going to be an invitation that you didn't answer. It's going to be an opportunity that you missed. And every time you see this boy, Emmanuel, it's going to remind you of what you did. God was with you, Ahaz, and yet you chose Assyria over God because you thought your plan was preferable to his. So keep an eye on this boy, Emmanuel, who's about to be born. Because by the time he has a moral consciousness, that is in the next 10 or 12 years, not only will the two kingdoms that you fear be wiped off the face of the earth, as I already said they would be, but now your own nation is also going to experience the wrath of God delivered through the king of Assyria who will invade Judah, who will devastate the land. And eventually, we see in chapter 8, especially in verse 8, that Assyria is going to come in like a river. And the nation of Judah is going to be like a man trying to stand in that river, trying to keep his head above water and keep from being drowned. And it's going to reach all the way up to his neck. But, verse 10 of chapter 8, because God is with us, there will eventually be a deliverance. But Ahaz would not see it because Ahaz, when it came to a choice between doing things God's way and doing things his way, he chose to follow his own brilliant scheme instead of following God. And history tells us that this prophecy came to pass exactly on time for all three of these nations. So here's the question. Is God still with us today? We're going to see in, in a few minutes how God is definitely still with us today. He is. If God is with us, then why do we sometimes do the same thing that King Ahaz did? How, how do we sometimes make a deal with the Assyrians in our own life? How do we default to worldly thinking rather than seeking God first? How, how do we, and then when we do that, how do we sometimes pay the price for our decision? When do we respond to life's frightening questions and, and threatening times by panicking and doing the first thing that comes to mind or maybe the first opportunity that, that is put before us? 
Do we sometimes maybe accept a job that we know probably isn't what God wants for us or even rush into a marriage relationship that we're pretty sure God would have us have second thoughts about or maybe make some other quick decision that we've sold ourselves on and insert a quick prayer after we make the decision asking God to bless it but not really stopping to ask him what he really wants for us because truth be told we're afraid of his answer. Do we respond to a scary medical diagnosis by, you know, you start to pray, but then you just get too anxious, so you skip your time with God, and instead you spend hours surfing around on WebMD, scanning every little symptom and treatment in case the doctor might have missed something? Do you respond to a financial setback by first cutting down on your giving to the Lord and telling him that you'll put him back in the budget after you fix the problem? Do we respond to the, the fear of our kids rebelling against us by immediately clamping down or, or losing our composure or saying things that we might one day live to regret? Do we respond to relationship conflict by putting up our defenses, justifying our own behavior, striking out, trashing the other person before we've asked the Holy Spirit to take his searchlight and shine it on our hearts first? In times like this, when there's a decision to make like that, there's an invitation for us too. Here's the invitation. God is with us. God is with us. He is very near to you. Turn to Him instead of away from Him. Give up on your own schemes or at least, or at least put them on hold until you have stopped and, ready for the most painful word of the day, waited for God. Waited on God in open-minded honest prayer. It strikes me that God was actually asking Ahaz to wait here because when God gave him the sign, it was a sign that was going to take at least a year to happen. But Ahaz would have none of that. Instead, he acted on impulse, and as is often the case with us, his first impulse was not to trust God, it was to trust himself. So you might be wondering, why wasn't Isaiah a little more specific here? You know, why don't we know who the virgin was and who the person was and who the baby, you know? Why, why wasn't he specific about this baby boy that was going to be born? We could have had a lot more information here, and it would have made the passage a lot easier for us to understand, and we wouldn't have to guess at some things. Well, that's a good question, but I think you might already be suspecting the answer to it. You see, the virgin back in 735 B.C., or whatever that year was, it's close to then, was, the, was only the near-term partial fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy in fact, those words look forward not just 10 or 12 years, but also more than 700 years to another virgin who would one day conceive and give birth, yes, while she was still a virgin. And instead of this woman's son being just a sign that God was with us, this woman's son would actually be God with us in the flesh. And yes, Jesus was also a sign he was a sign, no question about it, just like the first Emmanuel. Jesus was, in Simeon's words, a sign that will be spoken against. And there were plenty of people in his time that wanted to speak against Jesus, and they did. Because Emmanuel, God with us, was not an invitation they wanted to answer because they had other plans. You see, in Jesus' day, it wasn't the Assyrians anymore. It was a much more powerful, much more frightening empire, the Roman Empire, and they already pretty much had control, and they could stomp Israel out of existence, really, whenever they wanted to. So a big priority for a lot of people was not listening to some preacher from the sticks who invited them to be changed in their hearts from the inside out and then turn and change their world from the inside out. That wasn't what they wanted. 
They wanted immediate action. Some of them were ready to take up arms to start a revolution against the oppressors. Other ones who were more in the spirit of Ahaz were making deals to keep themselves in power and trying to, to conciliate the oppressors. Only a few people were really looking for the kingdom of God and the true salvation of Israel. Only a few people would put their trust in this strange miracle worker from the small town in Galilee. Only a few people saw that the most critical problem was not the one posed by the Romans, but by the sin and rebellion in their own hearts. And so only a few people really found Emmanuel. Only the poor in spirit. Only those who have mourned. Only those who hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Only the pure in heart. Those were the ones, the meek. Those were the people that found Emmanuel. And even the people that found him, even the believers in Jesus, even those that trusted in him, still had trouble trusting him a lot of times. Just like we do as Christians today, we have trouble. I can think of no better example of this than those 12 disciples that were straining at the oars on the Sea of Galilee, actually trying to row their way out of a threatening storm, while all the time Jesus was asleep in another part of the boat. Talk about God with us, like literally in the boat. But they didn't turn to him except to accuse him of not caring when the storm got too bad. Does that sound familiar? And after Jesus did calm the storm, giving them a pretty good idea, by the way, that he was Emmanuel, do you remember what he asked them? He didn't say, why don't you have any faith? Remember what he said? He said, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I know you're following me. I know you have faith in me, so where is it? Why aren't you using it at a time like this when your hearts are shaking like leaves on a tree? Listen, are you responding to the fearful things that are happening in your life or that might happen in your life by grabbing the oars and trying to row your way out of a hurricane? Or are you turning to the God who through Jesus and now also through the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life is still God with you or God in you? Emmanuel is not only with us this morning, he's inviting you to come to him, not just to receive answers, not just to get the problem fixed, not just to get relief, but Jesus wants to give you himself. He wants to give you himself. First, if he hasn't done this yet, he wants to become your savior. He is offering to take your sin, your rebellion, your guilt, and your shame all upon himself because he paid for all those things on the cross at Calvary. But he does ask you to repent when you believe in him, to repent, which pretty much means to stop trusting in yourself and to start trusting in him. It's a change of direction. It's a change of mind. But then there's so much more. He wants to replace that fear you have with confidence in his perfect love. He wants to mold your character to be like his, which sometimes means waiting, sometimes means holding your tongue, pretty much always means going to him in prayer. It means a lot of things that we don't like to do, or at least we don't do very reflexively. He also wants to make you a blessing to the other people in your life whose hearts are actually still shaking like trees in the wind because they don't know Jesus. You know, we, we will never know what obedience would have looked like for King Ahaz because he didn't answer the invitation. 
of Emmanuel. He was too dead set on his own ways. But we do know, this is interesting, we do know what obedience looked like for his son, Hezekiah, who eventually had to clean up the huge mess that his father made with a really big Assyrian invasion. Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, did things in a different way. He answered God's invitation. He put his trust in the Lord and Judah was miraculously rescued as God struck down 185,000 invading soldiers with a plague in one night. And the commander of the Assyrian army had to retreat in disgrace. Now, I don't know what deliverance is going to look like for you. But I do know this, that if you put your trust in him, Emmanuel will also deliver you. He will rescue you and preserve your life. He, he, he may do it by delivering you from your fears, even miraculously, that may happen. Or he may do it by delivering you and guiding you through your fears. But either way, he wants to give you more of himself, more of his love, more of his character, more of his life. He wants to live through you. And he hates to see you straining at the oars when all the time he's right with you in the boat. And you don't really have to wake him up, by the way. He's awake. So won't you put your trust in him this morning, either for salvation or to trust him in that area that you might just be about to make a big mess of. Now's the invitation. Let's pray.